0: Hi, Victoria.
1: How are you? Hello, Katarina. I'm fine. How are you? Thank you. Good, good. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this evening. It should be so interesting.
0: Yes, me too. I'm very excited.
1: So we're here kind of early, and this is the time when maybe we, um, I don't know, open the windows, turn on the heater, uh, adjust the chairs, <laughs> make sure everyone's comfy.
0: Yeah, exactly. Thank you, everyone, for coming. And uh, we'll start the room in around five minutes, and then I'll be introducing the two guest speakers, and then Victoria will. Uh, be asking them some questions so that we all get to know them a little bit better. Um, And um, that will be interesting. And then they will be talking about this huge study that they did. This was the the biggest uh, psychedelic study that has ever been performed. So I'm very interested in hearing about it. Hi, Dennis, how are you?
2: Hi, Katarina, very good. Hi, Victoria, looking forward to this chat. I was reading over some of the prelim data and it was very interesting.
1: Hey, Dennis, nice to see you.
2: Very cool, I see some of the regulars here. Hopefully some other people will be joining us as we get started. Um, One request, if you find value in the discussions, please hit the share button. It's the square with this uh, arrow pointing out of it so that we can have more ears in here and have that going for us.
0: Welcome, Danilo, thank you for coming. Um, if you accept the invitation to speak, uh, you can, hi, okay. how are Over you? Now? Thank you. Yep, now I hear you. Okay. <laughs> how are Okay, you that's good.
3: Pretty good, pretty good, let me see. <clears throat> let me see whether the wifi is better or G5. Typically it's not the wifi um there we go so we're missing manesh
0: yeah we'll wait another few minutes so um i wanted to
4: Mm
0: -hmm. thank you again for coming of course and um i wanted to ask you we had like an idea to Start that we wanted to start with today. We always mm-hmm. feel like the guest speakers don't get, um, like our audience get, don't get to know them very well. Mm-hmm. Just,
5: mm-hmm.
0: So Victoria had this great idea that she would start maybe with a few questions like, uh, how did you get to be interested in science or your subject? So I hope that's okay with you. We always think like, People should get to know the scientist a little bit better, and mm-hmm. gets lost. So if that's okay, we'll, we'll sure. Do. Yeah, why not? Oh, hi Manish. Uh, welcome. Thank you for coming.
3: Hey,
6: thank you. My pleasure. There he is.
0: Yeah, so we can slowly start. I'll so, uh, Welcome um, to the Science Society, and I want you to introduce you to Victoria. She is a wonderful moderator, uh, much better than I am.
1: <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that.
0: <laughs> but um, so humble. Yeah, let me just introduce you really quick to the audience a little bit about your background, and then Victoria can can take over. So, um. Please, everyone, uh, meet uh, Manish Giran. He's a psychedelic scientist. He's currently a PhD student in neuroscience at the McGill University and has been the lead or co-author on over a dozen scientific publications already as a PhD student and book chapters on topics including psychedelics, meditation, daydreaming, and the default network. He does, uh, he's currently doing research on the brain mechanisms underlying LSD, psilocybin, and DMT in collaboration with Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris and others from the Imperial College London. And uh, he also runs a very successful YouTube channel called The Psychedelic Scientist uh, where he discusses the latest findings in psychedelic science. And also meet Dr. Danilo Pstock. He's a medical doctor by training with a dual background in system neuroscience and machine learning statistics. And after medical training at the um, Aachen University in Germany and University of Lausanne in Switzerland and Harvard Medical School, he completed a PhD in brain imaging neuroscience. And one P- and another PhD in computer science and machine learning statistics um, at um, Saclay and Neurospin, France, in 2016. Danilo currently serves as associate professor at the McGill's Faculty of Medicine and as Canada CIFAR um, AI Chair at Mila, Quebec Artificial Intelligence Institute, Montreal. Canada. And um, yeah, we are very honored to have such accomplished uh, speakers here today. Uh, I feel like a total total lazy person (laughs) next to you. And uh, welcome. And um, yeah, Victoria, the stage is yours. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Katarina. It's my pleasure. And Katarina said we are so excited to have you here we feel that it's an honor to have both of you here sharing your work and and taking out from your your busy schedules and and so we want to um, I, I hope that you can hear me okay and Manisha I, I will start with you and and the questions can be shared across both of you of course but um, I see you both have a hot mic too so Uh, maybe it's I don't know how long you've been on Clubhouse but if you're not speaking it's okay to mute your mic and and that way um, your mic is muted and otherwise when you want to speak go ahead and unmute and so I will just start with this I'm I'm curious to hear how did you find yourself in a life of science do you do you remember maybe a first time when something sparked your interest and you knew that science is something that you were loving and you wanted to just spend your life involved with manish
6: yeah uh, first of all yeah thanks for the introduction katarina um yeah my journey into science so uh it kind of i came from, from perhaps the unconventional path where i somehow way, got very interested in meditation as a teenager maybe around 15 16 years old and that drew me into reading a lot about, uh, you could say, mysticism, East and West and spirituality. And then uh, through that, I got interested in the mind and, and uh, of the concept of, you know, enlightenment of being able to train our mind and refine the way we perceive the world. And just how much of our experience of life is dependent on, our, on ourselves, you know, on our own perception of it. And eventually that led me to reading some books on psychedelics, uh, in particular, the pioneering LSD psychiatrist Stanislav Grof, uh, reading one of his books, which is uh, is called LSD Doorway to the Numinous. Uh, So I read this around age 18, something like this, and really opened my eyes to, you know, the huge range of states that people can go into under the influence of a psychedelic, you know, ranging from dreamlike visions of landscapes and, uh, having full conversations in your head uh, to experiences of expanding to the universe and feeling the sense of oneness and um, and just just a range of possible experiences a human can go go through and just the potential i might have for healing and insight and so on and then so from there i realized how these drugs are pretty stigmatized and people don't really recognize the possibility of these states let alone their value and so i kind of got into uh got into a focus on science particularly cognitive neuroscience and psychology with an interest in rigorously studying these kind of airy subjective uh phenomena and just finding a way it's like how can we bring more credibility and rigor to these things that usually are seen as outside the domain of science um so yeah so that's basically my path and then i was lucky enough to get meet the right people and get linked to the right labs to start moving in that direction
1: i'm i uh... <laughs> so many questions. Um, but I, I won't uh, ask all the questions. But but I, I find it interesting that you went toward psychedelics. I, I don't, I'm curious if it was perhaps your your experience with meditation and noticing that there were uh, experiences that could affect your inner life and um, or your, your thought process. And maybe that's what led you uh, maybe externally towards psychedelics instead of continuing on a path in psychology.
6: Yeah, I guess you could say it was a fascination with introspection and exploring inner states and just, just reading broadly. And I don't remember how exactly I got into Stan Groff. I think it was um, perhaps just interest in psychoanalysis because he links himself to Carl Jung a lot. Um, and somehow I came across it, I guess, you know, it was... A serendipitous way and then it just really opened my eyes and, and the connection to meditation is very clear in my mind um, Because it can been used to unlock these kinds of mystical states that usually were reserved for you know ascetics or uh, Meditators or yogis, etc. And I just find it fascinating that a, basically a chemical key can unlock these really radical and profound uh, States of consciousness and that really yeah, it was, it's still fascinating to me
1: it's also it's just really meaningful that you're also sharing your work on youtube so you're making it accessible to people who may not be reading scientific journals or who are but i i just applaud you for for taking that extra effort and and um you know bringing your research to more people
6: yes thank you i appreciate that definitely it was my intention to spread this knowledge in a rigorous way because there is a lot of pretty poor knowledge on the space as well and so I really wanted to counter that. Yeah,
1: thank you, Manish. Danilo, it's your turn. Hello. Thank you so much for coming here and, and being with us um, in Science Society. And I'm, I'm curious about your path to, to your specialization. You know, when, when did you decide that you were interested in sciences? And how did you find yourself where you are now?
3: Well, thanks so much. Uh, thanks, Katarina, for the very generous introduction. Um, yeah, OK, path to science it's, its not easy to explain in a few sentences. Uh, essentially, I was always interested in uh, getting to the bottom of things and uh, understanding underlying principles. Um, what fascinated me most, let's say, in high school was really this question um, what what is, what is fundamental about the human condition? How are humans different from other species? So that's of course a very broad and maybe unnecessarily broad question. Um, the ways I started to explore this is by reading psychology, anthropology, philosophy, but somehow I thought that um, that may not be the most fruitful way to go forward and um, I ended up starting by medicine uh, to really learn the foundations of the biology of the body, but it was always in view of going towards neuroscience later on. And this is, this is also what, what happened. Um, so fast forward into the future, why psychedelics? Um, my lab is not necessarily uh, specialized in psychedelics. However, we see it as a great tool to open a mechanistically defined window into a conscious awareness of of humans and of human perception, and that is really what sparked our interest and of my team at uh, McGill and Mila Quebec AI Institute.
1: Thank you. It's you know it isn't it isn't trivial to hear what your path was toward toward your work today because it, it gives us. Oh, maybe a greater understanding when we hear more about your research, and it it just deepens the interest. And for anyone who is exploring a path in the research that you're doing, I think it's it's helpful to hear how you got there. And it's, you know, it's just wonderful to hear, um, maybe get to know both of you a little bit more as people, you know. In, included in your research. So thank you. I really appreciate your time. And, and Katarina, I'm going to turn the mic back over to you. And thank you both so much.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for, for that great, more personalized introduction. Um, yeah, Danila the, the and Manish, the stage is yours to talk, give us um, and overview over this really humongous psychedelic study. Thank you.
3: Okay, so what's useful questions to start? I would naturally uh, talk about why psychedelics are relevant in general before we get to our particular study. Does does this sound like a plan?
0: Yes, perfect.
3: Okay, so yeah, I'm just going to try to start. Uh, manesh can then correct me and add to to what I'm saying. So I think there's multiple dimensions and angles why psychedelics are really having prime time right now. As many of you probably know, uh, it has been a taboo topic since the sixties, very little to no public funding for several decades. And now it's really coming back in a huge way. Why is that? Well, first of all, because um, of the growing realization that um, certain hallucinogenic drugs do confer benefits in major mental health conditions and so by this i mean schizophrenia uh, psychosis depression post-traumatic stress disorder and so on and so forth and what's particularly um disturbing the good disturbing is that a single administration of uh, some of those drugs they can really um induce long-lasting benefits even weeks and months later so there is a potential to have a huge impact on the clinical treatment of um, psychiatric conditions. And that's particularly important because since the 80s, uh, there was no quintessential improvement in the, the delivery of drug-based therapy in psychiatry. So that means that somebody who is treated for um, major depression in the Western world um today uh, there's not so much difference from what we did uh, 40 years ago so from a more economic perspective now um that's also a very attractive arena to be in right now because um the mental health space is the largest fraction in sector in general um, and this is why it's all the more important uh, to make a dent in, in this Particular part of medicine. So what a lot of people don't usually expect is that <clears throat> the mental health space in terms of costs, from a number of perspectives, is actually bigger than the entire cancer space. So that is why now that we see promise, there's, uh, as far as I know, at least 200 startups and companies that started in that space over the last uh, five to 10 years, say, uh, and there's, there's, there's hundreds of millions of investments from a uh, big name venture capital. Companies, so as you can see, there's a lot of momentum in terms of basic science, clinical application, as well as economic exploitation. But I'm sure Manesh has other aspects to add.
6: Yeah, I mean, definitely, that was a good summary, and uh, it is really the clinical benefits on the treatment of mental health disorders that's spearheading this new uh, wave of psychedelic research. And I mean, what's particularly fascinating in about psychedelics and how they're different from you know, what you can call the standard pharmaceuticals or standard antidepressants, is that they work through a fundamentally different way. Um, you know, with a standard antidepressant like an SSRI, um, you take it every day. And the, the basic idea essentially is that it's working behind the scenes in your brain uh, to change, you know, the chemical balance to uh, basically reduce your symptoms and make you feel better. Um, But with psychedelics, the treat model is radically different where you take it a limited number of times. So most of the clinical trials, you only take the actual psychedelic drug like psilocybin, which is a compound in magic mushrooms. You only take it one to three times. And um, there was a recent study from John Hopkins University where even at a year later, people had sustained reductions of depression. And I believe that was only from two or three sessions with the drug you know compare that with any other drug you in in that year you would have taken it 365 times probably um and the reason being psychedelics induce an altered state of consciousness which often allows people to gain insight into their life to work through emotions they had previously been repressing um to kind of face the things they needed to face and which might be underlying their condition whether it's trauma or just a adverse childhood experience in general or just some kind of myopic thinking or a way they got stuck mentally. Um, And it's opening them up to kind of come back to uh, themselves and reconnect with the world and change their behavior and their thinking in a more healthy, positive way. Um, Of course, with the right uh, psychological support. Um, So in that way, psychedelics are this interesting treatment where it combines a drug intervention with psychotherapy wherein the drug intervention it facilitates the therapeutic process through the experience it elicits. So psychedelics are this extremely unique case in that way, and a lot of people will argue are actually helping people resolve what's underlying their conditions rather than just pushing it under the rug and making you artificially feel better.
2: I have a quick question. So, given that um, psychedelics and all sorts of other natural compounds are classified as Schedule 1 having no medical benefit, which obviously we can test here. um, How was it that these um, drugs are seeing the new development? Obviously, I understand in Canada it's a different set of regulations. Actually curiously enough now that I'm asking is there is it also in the same class is is there no known medical or i don't really know what the legal structure is in canada and if nobody does know then we don't have to get into it
6: yeah i can answer that so in canada yeah it is you know just as illegal at the moment as the states um and in canada in order to get to allow uh, to gain access to it for research purposes there's something called a section 56 exemption so health canada which is equivalent to the fda um there are ways to send application to be able to study these scheduled substances in a very controlled way and and controlled and regulated way and i would imagine it's very similar for the fda where like reputable researchers and institutions uh can probably through a lengthy bureaucratic process be able to gain access in a very controlled and specific way for research and this is kind of what's been going on
3: Yeah, I think I have nothing more to say on this point. So are we done with the general background? Why psychedelics now? Or are there questions on the setting? Uh,
0: No, I think we're good about that. I'll ask uh, my questions afterwards.
3: Okay, so uh, a natural next step that the journalists usually ask at this point is why did we now conduct our particular study? Does this sound like a useful point to attack right now?
0: <laughs> yes, thank you.
3: Okay, so let's go into it. Um, so, from, from, from my truest perspective, um, I think that um, there are a number of characteristics that are worth mentioning of how brain science and psychedelics has been done traditionally. And um, maybe I'm just going to portray the nature of a particular study like that as they are still done today. So you just need to imagine that it's something that takes multiple years, it costs several hundred thousand dollars, and um, that is, for example, because it is a somewhat invasive type of study. And, and this is why there is a, a lengthy and detailed and complicated um, ethics approval process. That is that is one of the reasons why the traditional way to study psychedelics and, and imaging neuroscience um, is is kind of slow. And the next point is that it is logistically very challenging. So uh, the participants, they need to come to the lab, um, take take these drugs, um, it, it takes several hours, Um it is a very controlled type of setting. I don't know how many here have been in a magnetic resonance imaging scanner before. And so uh, <clears throat> there's this very controlled, very specific, very um, detailed process and protocol of how to conduct these before, after, brain scan type of studies so with and without uh, the influence of a drug and that is at the end of the day why these studies usually have sample sizes so number of participants that are only in the dozens okay so even some of the best um studies in the space of um, psychedelics if there's a brain imaging component a brain scanning component um that we're, we're usually talking about a few dozen subjects so you probably already guessed where i'm going with this and there are certain types of questions certain categories of research questions that we may not be able to even tackle or start to tackle if we just have a few dozen subjects at our hands and so the next point is because it's so expensive because it's so laborious because there's so much preparation that goes into the classic mode of conducting psychedelic research it is as far as i know also the case that only one or few psychedelic drugs can usually uh, be examined in a same investigation so <clears throat> and that these shortcomings, these properties of this particular research community were precisely the motivation of why we took a drastically different approach. So first off, we wanted to conduct um, a study that really cuts across the various different types of hallucinogenic drugs that are out there. So in our particular study, uh, triplacene neurotransmitters, uh, we are lucky to have data from as many as 27 drugs different compounds are known and accepted widely uh, um, acknowledged to induce some form of hallucinogenic alteration um and just that by itself is already a huge difference from uh pretty much any other brain imaging study that has been done in that space before um but how can you how can you do that how can you actually study um, the effects of 27 neurotransmitters at the same time. Um, And to answer that question, we had to design a completely new big data analytics approach. So we had to purpose design a quantitative analysis, a statistical approach, to actually um, process this breadth of complex data. So um, what makes it different, too, is that we placed a huge premium on the text information so <clears throat> the database that we analyzed literally only contains just imagine 7000 microsoft word documents of one or two pages with free form descriptions of um, hallucinogenic experience that the people wrote down after the experience so the the starting point is literally only a few thousand text documents. And so that is a very unusual way, a computational way, and in silico type of way, as we say, to get at the question of um, the underlying principles across 27 different hallucinogenic drugs. And <clears throat> what we really wanted to do and what this setting allows us to do in a unique way To really get at the following question that, in my opinion, has not been asked in this way before, and that is which types of above chance word occurrences are robustly associated with which particular archetypes, prototypes of hallucinogenic drug experience? So, what do I mean by prototypes? So, you probably all know that um, psychedelic experiences have different. Sensations, components, uh, those are changes in emotion, um, visual uh, perception changes, auditory hallucinations, um, and one of the favorites, ego dissolution, uh, the impression of becoming one with the world, for example. So um, what we really try to do is is to computationally dissect this richness of drug-induced experience in a completely data-driven way to get at something like the personality types of um, psychedelic experiences and how they are very closely related to the precise neurotransmitter subsystems so it's usually pretty confusing how we conducted the study that's just the experience from 10 different interviews that i gave over the last few days So I guess uh, if if there are questions on the starting point and how our study is different from the traditional way, I think it's a good moment to ask these questions.
7: Um, I don't know if this is a good point. Maybe this is more appropriate after you talk about the results, but one of the issues that I've had in general with um, psychedelic studies, and this I think impacts uh, the work that you did are where is the data coming from? And does it represent a truly diverse population of folks that have had these experiences? Or does it uh, represent a more culturally bound representation of these experiences, especially when these drugs are used within different um, religious expressions or cultural expressions, and that could alter the kinds of words that are used to describe the experiences that people have with them. So I wonder if you have any comments on that.
3: Um, So, okay, one way to think about it is, um, you know, what's better, not to do a study or to get a reasonable first approximation to the question? Um, We do not have very precise control over what is in the database that we analyzed. The database called ArrowWIT, it's been out there for quite some time, Uh, It has not been analysed in the way we tried before. Um, We have partial information on the demographics of the participants that contributed to the study. But uh, one way in which um, this database and this approach to analysing this database departs from classical research avenues is certainly that we have much less control over who actually participated uh, in these studies because it's voluntary, because people could uh, not say the truth. So that is, of course, a very big difference um, to um, the more standard ways to investigate psychedelics in the brain. Um, And we hope, of course, that our proof of principle investigation motivates future more principled, more diverse, um, more demographically stratified and balanced ways To study um, language and the relation to how psychedelics impact the brain, but at this point in history, where we are right now, and the Arrowhead database, with all its advantages and disadvantages, was, from my perspective, the only opportunity to ask the question: What are the underlying principles of um, semantic structure that people use to describe hallucinogenic experience, and the unique prototypes and archetypes? um of well and how they are related to specific neurotransmitter systems so yes we do not have full control over the demographics of this database but without this database we could never have done the study
7: yes uh totally understood and i'm actually um very excited about this type of approach but i'm always um aware of the types of biases that can influence uh our results and the interpretation of the results particularly selection bias
5: I can quickly jump
6: in. Sorry, Victoria. I was just going to say, I mean, if you compare this to the standard uh, kind of experimental studies with a small cohort, I would say those are much more likely to be uh, biased than this study, because this was, again, you know, over 6,000 reports online of people um, who probably varied widely in why they were taking it, whether from partying for introspection, uh, for whatever, so I think uh, this sample on it from Arrowhead is probably much more diverse uh, than any controlled study as well.
7: Yeah, actually, you you, you highlight my my issue is that I think because I'm 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 a psychiatrist, I'm a neuroscientist. I think about how these could apply to the patients that I see in my clinic, and I'm always. Um, sort of wary that if we're relying on data where people have taken you know these substances voluntarily or they've had positive experiences with them in the past that that could affect things like the placebo response to them and so i'm very um attuned to where is this data coming from and how generalizable is it
3: maybe maybe one quick point here Um, you know let me just compare to a recent development in psychology which is mechanical turk right so 10, 10-ish, 10, 15 years ago, it's been still the standard in experimental psychology, inviting people to the lab, to this very controlled setting. And then suddenly there was this internet platform that allowed you to administer uh, screen-based experiments all across the planet uh, in exchange for a, uh, um, well, something like a small salary on a, on a per minute basis, right? Of course, um, all the psychologists, the traditional experimentalists, they were skeptical, but it turns out that um, this more um, crowdsourcing type of way to conduct experiments, at the end of the day, actually turned out to be more diverse, and more balanced, and more representative than a lot of the classic psychological studies that just turned out to be mostly conducted in young, late teens, early 20s, overly healthy, overly intelligent um, students that uh, were much less representative than what could be done in the crowdsourcing type of way. So that's just an example to Manesh's point that he just made. In addition, um, this study is not yet very squarely focused on the direct translation to clinical practice. It tries to pave the way, plant an important cornerstone, but um, I, this study itself does not directly speak to um, therapy directly. So this is why um, <clears throat> we, we don't need to worry about this aspect at, at this point.
2: I have a question. So we are discussing self-selection bias and reporting and how that may influence outcomes it's very interesting that you mentioned that perhaps it might lead to actually more diverse outcomes i was wondering is there a a analog to self-selection bias within the clinical trial or you know the formal what am i trying to say i think we understand what i'm trying to say
7: yeah i i think absolutely that that's kind of what i that's why i'm bringing this up is because Um, If you look at some of the studies that have been published out of the groups in in England and at Hopkins, a a lot of the folks that are involved in the clinical trials have actually had prior experience with psychedelics, and that's why they're volunteering for these studies.
2: That was what we found. We had a speaker um, last week, I believe it was, and they when we were discussing the method section, that was part of the criteria, because you don't necessarily want to... um, take someone who's never experienced it and then ask them to be um, very good at describing what they experience. It's kind of like the first time you do anything. You kind of don't know what you're doing.
6: I should say that while like the fMRI and other like psychological studies are usually with people who are not uh, psychedelic naive who've taken before. A lot of the clinical trials are there are multiple clinical trials where they specifically uh, look for people who didn't try before. Uh, i believe uh i might be wrong and so i think the cell a trial from imperial college london had uh psychedelic naive people in it as well
7: no i i don't think they they were actually that's that's one of the studies that i'm referring from carhartt okay group. Then yeah maybe they, if... yeah they actually had quite a number of them not all of them but quite a, like i think the majority actually had experience with psychedelics before
6: okay then maybe i'm thinking about the hopkins but yeah but i think the point is not all of them but but you're Totally right. I mean, again, it, it points to the infancy of the field, right? Like we want to ensure the safety in, in people who uh, are less like likely to have an aversive experience first before moving on to other people and expanding the population. Because, yeah, even the inclusion criteria in these studies is very, very strict, again, because it's very early, early days and we don't want to, you know, exacerbate somebody's illness or have an unexpected aversive uh, experience.
2: For those who don't know what the vaults of Arrowhead are, would someone like to just give a brief summary?
6: I mean, I guess I could. Uh, I mean, basically Arrowhead is this long-standing website where people... It's basically created the community of what you can call psychonauts, which is like people who explore inner space, you could say, Uh, of people just reporting their experiences and sharing knowledge. Um, and it's been around, I think, uh, for a couple, at least a decade, maybe two decades. At um, least a, two. Yeah, at least two. And this is huge. Now, uh, one component of the website is this huge repository or vault, as they call it, of trip reports with all the drugs you can ever think of and probably would never think of um, in all variety of ways. So it's just this huge crowdsourced, um, yeah, vault or repository of trip reports.
0: Yeah, if so I may add, um, or I... I may add and then ask the question. So I did uh, some uh, everyday language analysis for um, uh, assessing different mental states too. And I started with, uh, I didn't start with, I went ahead um, later on and went through um, data analysis of different online forums because I, th- um, I read and I agreed that kind of this anonymous, uh, voluntary way of sharing was the language um, was way more honest uh, than in this clinical research um, settings where doctors and um, people that perform studies because um, I felt that um, the uh, participants if they like the people that perform the studies they really want to do well and make a good impression so it kind of my point of view distorted the data a little bit and then when you look at the forms when people are frustrated or um, or in like everyday situations where it's just hard uh, the language was um, because I also did the honesty uh, analyzer and uh, it, for me, it came out that the language was just way more honest. But um, just to give a little bit support there on the... I got a lot of criticism from like reviewers for it, but I still felt like that was actually one of uh, those studies were actually the best studies I did. But um, to ask uh, a question, I really... It's really cool that you analyzed the, the language data. So can you talk a little bit about that, like how you did that and what your um, results were? Like how did the language differ or what did it reflect? Um, I think that's really interesting to me at least.
3: OK, there seem to be two separate questions here. The first is, how did we actually do the text analysis? And the second is, what are the results? Um, let's maybe start with the first one Um, so what's unusual um, is that uh, we had a two-pronged approach in the first step Um, I already alluded to this there are two sources of knowledge the first is um, literally the unstructured word document type of documents um, on the one hand side and then on the other hand side we considered not the drugs themselves but their known pharmacological properties so just imagine that we simply ignored uh, which drug is which what their names are and so forth we just represented each drug as um, a set of of molecular binding affinities to 40 different neurotransmitter receptor subtypes so those are the usual suspects dopamine serotonin and and so forth and so how did we how did we bring these two quite different types of data and information into context into contact now and that is by um, machine learning tools that uh, we translated from a field that's called natural language processing so we um, adapted tools from natural language processing to get a hold of the um, the deluge of text information from these 7,000 reports. So the way you can imagine this is um, like an Excel sheet, where on um, the the Y axis, the rows, it's uh, the reports. So you have 7,000 different rows, roughly. And in the columns, you have a specific word in each column. So where do these words come from? So this is all in a, in a data-driven fashion. So we essentially look through all the reports and we build a list of all the notions that are mentioned at least once. And <clears throat> we perform a number of cleaning steps, um, such as we remove words that are very often used in the English language and are therefore not indicative so much of the semantic meaning. And, and so the first step is to really arrive at two, two big matrices or two big tables, if you will. Both of them have 7,000 rows. One of them has, in our case, 14,000 columns. That's the words. And then so in that table, we really lock how often has each word been used in a particular uh, testimonial because we recode reexpress the information in this table form you can already guess that this actually destroys the structure of the sentences uh, including the grammar but this is one of the most common ways most common starting points of natural language processing nlp type of pipelines so we have this one table on the other hand side we have another table that includes the the neurotransmitter receptor affinities that I already mentioned. So you have again 7,000 rows because those are the the testimonials. And in the 40 columns, we have um, the pharmacological um, indicators of how likely a drug is to bind to each of the 40,000 receptors. So any questions up to this point, because it's very important to kind of, that everybody's on the same page here, any questions up to the point where we rehash, re-represent, restructure the data in the way I just described? I think that was very clear. Very clear. Okay, good. So, you have these two hand sides, And now we do something that, that is the key idea probably, which, which hasn't been done before. So, again, we, we ignore which drug is which. We just have this 40-dimensional representation of their binding profiles uh, across the neurotransmitter verse in the brain, if you will. And now, once we have this uh, um, natural language processing based um, encoding of these otherwise wild and unstructured testimonials, now we really get to the actual pattern learning analysis that is gonna answer and uh, at least uh, try to get at the question How are sets of word usages related to sets of neurotransmitter systems? And the particular method that we used here is called canonical correlation analysis. It doesn't really matter so much what this particular analysis exactly is. It could have been done by Cousins variants of this. There's no specificity for this particular pattern learning algorithm. But the basic idea behind it is important. So let me try to uh, portray what it is doing from a more intuitive perspective. So first off, we are trying to find underlying principles, simplifying rules that drive the, the narratives, the semantic contexts of the various drug reports in general. So we are trying to find um, broad axes and dimensions of how sets of words from these hundreds and hundreds of reports co occur in a systematic and robust way. And I can already mention at this point, we are quite surprised that that, that worked very well. Because if you think that the, the reports, they are almost like Amazon book reports, anybody can uh, submit something. So why should people consistently use the exact same words to describe their hallucinogenic experiences, right? It's not necessarily a given. And that was the first surprise that uh, au contraire, it actually worked pretty well. And um, there was a lot of agreement in the types of words that people naturally chose without any external instructions, just to remind you, um, of how they verbalized their particular experience post hoc after the fact. So, but <clears throat> it's more complicated than this because we have the same search for general principles underlying axes, dimensions in the receptors on the other side, on, in the other axis sheet I just described too. And the trick is that these two um, search processes, they're directly coupled with each other. So we are not just looking for what are the driving principles of what words are used together to describe hallucinogenic experiences. We are also not asking what are the underlying principles and sets of neurotransmitter receptors that are inducing hallucinogenic states. No, we are asking which underlying principles in the semantic contexts across the 7,000 components are most robustly coupled with the underlying principles of neurotransmitter receptor combinations. So how are sets that explain most of the variation across 14,000 words most uniquely linked to sets of neurotransmitter receptor subsystems? So everybody on the same page up to here?
0: Yes, perfect.
3: Okay, that's good. So let me add one more aspect now for this particular, um, this first step of two uh, in the analysis. So um, the additional point that, there, that still comes here into play is that um, we're not just looking for one underlying principle on each side, on the receptor side and on the semantic side uh, of these data, but we um, use an approach, a so-called latent factor approach, allows us to find several modes of um co-variation between the receptors and between the word usages that are mutually complementary with each other so <clears throat> let me um let me uh resort to the analogy to personality again many of you probably heard about the big five personality model write an acronym mnemonic for this is ocean uh, conscientiousness openness uh extraversion and so on and so forth and i think we can all uh, agree that we can situate every human being on these five axes of being more or less extroverted being more or less open and so forth so given this model of five major personality traits we can situate each human on this five dimensional five axes Dimensional graph, and each person would be a dot in this particular way to think about it. By analogy to personality, this is exactly what we did just in the example of hallucinogenic experiences and receptors. So we asked Are there maybe several of these prototypes that are complementary to each other? and uncorrelated with each other that together describe the overall experience. So and that is important, uh, just to recap, because um, as I'm sure you know, uh, a psychedelic experience has all these different aspects to them. I give some examples. Um, hallucinogenic uh, uh, alterations of auditory perception, visual perception, being submerged uh, emotionally, um, losing the boundary between self and the world, uh, space, time, distortions, and so on and so forth. What we try to do is can we actually tease those different aspects of the psychedelic experience apart to um, come up with a collection of the underlying elementary experience components. And so to make the turn to the results now, we were again surprised, uh, I'm happy to admit, how well that worked, because indeed the first prototypes of these core variations between sets of 40,000 words words, and um, sets between these 40 neurotransmitter receptor subsystems they did indeed capture um, these classic aspects that people naturally describe to be mixed in seemingly random ways, in the particular um, anecdotes of hallucinogenic experiences. Okay, so I hope I made roughly a good job of explaining this first of two steps of the analysis.
6: Yes, Daniel, I think that was a really good, great explanation. Maybe I can just give the very, very bare bones uh, summary in case you may have lost some people. I think how how, how I might say it is that, you know, basically what what you guys did was uh, find how sets of receptors um, and, you know, how sets of receptors relate to sets of testimonials, sets of trip reports. So, you know, and then you can view it as a set of receptors which are being activated, and then a set of trip reports which correspond to specific drugs. So, you get groups of drugs in the end which relate to groups of receptors, and then you can go further a step and see what words were most common in those drugs that are associated with the receptors. So, so therefore, you eventually get this plot, as you can see if you guys looked at the figure, where it's linking sets of drugs in different proportions to different receptors in different proportions, and then the words that are most common in those sets of drugs, which again relate to those receptors. So it's again linking sets of reports across different drugs to sets of receptors in the brain. Hopefully that was helpful.
0: I just wanted to comment. I really love how you bring such a systematic um, analysis into the subject finally Um, it's uh, really helpful i think for um, helping people making that they feel like they make a rational decision uh, on uh, maybe in the future using these uh, drugs as a treatment so um, i think you do did a great contribution to that with this work and uh, yeah, it's really amazing that people with really systematic um, and computational skills um, tackle this in this way. It's, it's really great. So, Victoria, I'm sorry, you wanted to say something.
1: Uh, no, I was just mic flashing. I was applauding and agreeing with you. It's just, I think, a definition of creative work is to be able to um, take something out of context and and to, I don't want to repeat what you just said. So, yeah, I was just applauding your words. Thanks.
0: Yeah, um, if you want to go ahead and ask a question, please feel free to do so. Um, I know a few people. Oh, Dennis, did you unmute yourself?
2: I did, but I want to leave some room for others to ask questions. I was very excited for the, for the findings but we'll, we'll take some time to get there. Dennis, please go ahead. Oh, sorry. Don't interrupt um, the floor. Um, who
1: was that?
2: A- okay. Andrew, go ahead with your question. Uh, Mark also joined the stage. Welcome, everybody um, who has just joined the stage. Um, flash your mics if you have questions. We'll go Andrew, then Mark. And if anyone else has questions, please flash your mic.
4: Hi everybody, thank you for allowing me to ask a question on stage. Uh, Doctor Danilo, I hope I'm addressing you the right way. Um would would there be for let's say for newbies that experimented briefly, let's say, with things like cannabis, um and then maybe psilocybin, is there I'm sure you you will you are reluctant to give practical advice or even suggest doses, but if you were to indulge what doses would you recommend for someone to start with?
2: Well, was there any information in these reports regarding dosage is actually an interesting question.
3: Um, yes, we we have partial information on the doses. Um, it's just that, yeah, so from my understanding, um, For these compounds in particular, it's quite difficult to measure. Uh, So from a limited experience, Manesh probably knows this better, if you just imagine these mushrooms. So in some mushrooms, you just have more active substance than in others. So you can't just go by the weight alone. And that's just one example. The second example would be, uh, I think it also depends on the way people store the particular compounds. So there could be drying and effects and so forth. So, so it really depends on the number oxidation. of oxidation, how much active, how much active, uh, substance is actually in a particular, um, psychedelic uh, substance. So from, from my perspective, it's, it's not actually so easy to know how much there's going to be. In a, partic- in a particular dose in front of you, even if the, the 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 weight is correct. Okay? Assuming that the weight is correct. And since it's all self-report, we can't be 100% sure that the weight is correct. We did perform some analyses related to the dose. Those were mostly control analyses. You can find those um, at the end of the results section if you look into the preprint. But, um, the, the combination with the doses is an interesting aspect, but that's, that's not the main focus of our present study. To get back to the first question that we had, uh, okay, I'm a medical doctor, but I'm certainly not qualified to give practical advice on um, consumption of these substances um, here in this context.
2: If you want further information on that, you can look potentially to the studies out of Johns Hopkins. However, um, those studies were conducted on synthetically sourced psilocybin, so it's not full-spectrum product. And then there's also an interesting aspect in terms of um, being able to metabolize these substances. I don't know if this applies in this context. I imagine it does, though. There are people who are very efficient at metabolizing medium, low, and perhaps even they cannot metabolize the substance whatsoever.
6: Yeah, along those lines, in addition to what Daniel said, particularly with stuff, uh, well, I guess any drug you get on the black market, you don't know what exactly you're getting or what dosage. Even mushrooms can, yeah, very, very, very widely in their potency by multiple, like, orders of magnitude. like where well, you can get one gram one one cent, uh, which is as strong as four grams of another strain. So it's very unreliable. And definitely liver enzymes play a huge role as well. There's a particular family called the cytochrome P450, which really, if you have a certain gene polymorphism in relation to that, can, you can really ramp up your sensitivity to a psychedelic. Um, and there's also other differences in personality and just the density of receptors in your brain, which also can change it. So it's very tough to make generalized uh, recommendations on dose. You just decide to be very careful and always mm-hmm. start start lower
4: Manish I have a question for you and then a brief question for Danilo and then I'll stop myself I will not uh, take the mic over again um, Manish I was inspired with this following question from basically your bio the first two lines in your bio says neuroscience PhD student studying how psychedelics work in the brain Okay, so let's entertain that idea for a second, technically speaking. So uh, both Manesh and Danilo, let's say, if you, Dr. Danilo, if you, take, uh, if you consume psychedelics such as psilocybin, um, let's say during sleep, uh, right, where your mind is not active, but it, it can still have an uh, effect on the brain uh, from a, like an architectural perspective, you know, like hardware perspective and then on the software perspective, what would be the result um, post sleep, uh, the affect on the mind, uh, opposed to just having a a direct um, effect on the mind uh, and experiencing it live. Are there benefits to use psychedelics such as psilocybin offline in terms of the mind and just allow the effects on the brain? I'm sorry if it's too silly of a question or too complex.
6: No, I understand what you're saying. I mean, there there um, are some interesting studies, I think, from the 50s and 60s with LSD, giving it to people uh, while they're sleeping or right before they sleep. And uh, it's been known to induce REM sleep, actually, and induce basically dreaming uh, in a state of kind of a, a sleep stage associated with dreaming and a kind of uh, paradoxical wakefulness in your brain while you're sleeping. Um, So that has been found before, uh, but I think in most cases, it's kind of hard to fall asleep if you take a psychedelic right before. Um, They're they're quite stimulating in a lot of cases. And and the other point you're making is essentially the question of, is there stuff that psychedelics are doing behind the scene independent of experience that can be beneficial? And that's actually a big topic of discussion in the field now because uh, psychedelics boost neuroplasticity in the brain. And neuroplasticity alone in, uh, in rodents has been found to reduce depression and anxiety symptoms, for example. So the thought is, you know, independent of the psychedelic experience, psychedelics seem to be able to possibly reduce these symptoms of depression. Um, and so that very much is a possibility. But uh, in any case, you, you're not, you're not going to be able to avoid the experience, at least with psychedelics as they are now Um, because it's going to induce the experience if you ingest it and that's going to be a part of the effect it has on you psychologically although uh, many companies uh,
4: question um would be would it be ethical to give psychedelics such as lsd or psilocybin to people in coma
6: that is a very interesting question and uh, uh ethical i don't know i can't speak to that but it's very interesting because for example a lot of consciousness researchers have noticed that You know, when you're under anesthesia or um, in a kind of coma vegetative-like state, uh, essentially your brain's, you could say, activity or dynamics become less complex. And when you try to kind of stimulate it, the reaction is less complex. But with psychedelics, it's actually your brain is more complex than it is in your normal waking state. So it's like a hyper-awake state when you're under a psychedelic in terms of your brain's responsiveness. And so there are people who have speculated, and in particular, I'm thinking of a research somewhere in South America, and uh, they've raised the possibility that it could be uh, useful for people with so-called disorders of consciousness in helping them retain some level of conscious awareness when they previously lacked it. But this is very much the frontier, and it hasn't really been conducted yet, and there are ethical hurdles, but it is actually, uh, in principle, something that be possible in
2: the future uh, I'm not aware of any studies that have been formally done in unconscious patients that is an interesting question
0: I had a comment about the sleep so that's interesting that you say that then uses uh, REM sleep in the because I always I had this theory my own theory uh, just to put it out Um That maybe I thought because psychedelics put you like in this a very intensive state, um, uh, mental states. That maybe people that have very very intense dreams are kind of um, have kind of a natural way of inducing these states and are kind of protected from mental health disorders. And interestingly, this uh, last week there came a paper out that actually uh, said they pinpointed four genes, I think, to um, people that have really uh, good quality of sleep and that in that subpopulation, um, they are very protected from mental health disorders and also later on uh, neurodegenerative disorders such as dementia and Parkinson. I thought it was quite interesting and that you mentioned that uh, I didn't realize that uh, these uh, psychedelics could induce these uh, REM states thank you for that
2: fascinating do you happen to recall any of the genes that those were
0: oh I have to look it up um, It's somewhere in my Twitter I'll...
2: okay we'll we'll get back to that point
0: yeah
5: I was
7: going to say, Katerina, that makes a lot of sense clinically when looking at the impact of SSRIs on sleep archi- architecture and REM sleep in particular, where you see um, basically uh, delayed REM latency, but patients will subjectively report more intense and vivid dreams. And and um, the other folks on the stage can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think some of the um, uh, neural circuits that are engaged in REM sleep are also involved in some of the clinical responses seen in um, the psychedelic trials.
2: They work off of some of the same receptors, so it it stands to reason that they would have the, some of the same effects, so um, serotonin receptors, for example, right?
7: Yes, that, that's my understanding. But I'd be curious to, to hear from the authors of the article, too.
3: Yeah, I can't say much about sleep. That's just not my area of expertise. Um, I agree that um, sleep is often a problem, mental health conditions. Um, so now you can ask what comes first. Uh, maybe there's some uh, interaction going on. Um, I agree that neurology, uh, neurodegeneration, for example, Alzheimer's, um, impaired sleep is definitely contributing as a risk factor towards um, people developing that condition. That's that's all I can say, but uh, I can't really put it in the context of uh, psychedelics myself.
6: If I may suggest, since it's getting a bit late, at least for us on on the East Coast, Danilo, would you like to walk through some of the main results and then maybe figure one, two and three or however you see it?
3: Yeah. Why don't we just talk about the results? Uh, So some some of the key results um, were quite surprising to us. Um, And first off, the one I like to mention first is really uh, the one on uh, serotonin as um, the, the most important receptor in the hallucinogenic experience or not. So more specifically, I think it's 5-HT2A. So <clears throat> there's a particular serotonin subreceptor around which a lot of the um, psychedelics literature revolved um, for a number of years. Of course, uh, people have been um, hypothesizing that there may be other receptors involved, and there's probably combinations and so on and so forth. However, when I read the papers, when I tried to read this literature, it was very much my impression that there is uh, something like a serotonin centrism in this particular pocket of the neuroscience community. So through this uh, impartial, data-driven, data-first type of approach that we carried out, we came to the conclusion that all the prototypes that we identified, ego dissolution, auditory hallucination, visual uh, alteration, and so forth, each of them was really robustly associated with a whole set, a whole combination, a larger, wider group of neurotransmitter receptors. So at least the way in which we conducted the analysis under the particular modeling assumptions that we made, we did not find strong evidence that serotonin is necessarily special in how hallucinogenic drug experience comes about. Uh, Or to say it from another perspective, um, based on our data, it looks much more to be the case that there are complicated combinations of neurotransmitter receptors that do involve serotonin but um it's really heterogeneous groups of neurotransmitter receptors that that are flagged highlighted by our analyses and i think that actually stands to reason because if you think about the diversity of the experiences i gave examples why why should those be generated by a single type of neurotransmitter receptor I think uh, it's much more likely that there's this heterogeneous set. Okay, did did I succeed in explaining this first key finding?
2: I think so. I hope at some point we'll get to what the number one word is.
3: I'm really worried, waiting for that, <laughs> that factoid. <laughs> well, the number one words, as Manash explained very well, they depend on the prototype. So the number one words, for something for the for for the archetype related to um, ego dissolution for example where words that are associated with mystical experiences alien universe galaxy uh planet earth words of that nature then we had a component that was more tuned to auditory hallucination, auditory alterations of perception. There are the top words uh, among the 14,000 candidates where, where typical words related to sounds. So sound, sounds, pitch, tone, music, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and in the emotional, emotional uh, components, you obviously had descriptions of, of emotions. So fear, overwhelmed, and and so on. We also had a somatosensory component. I haven't mentioned that one yet. So oftentimes during um, hallucinogenic experiences, there can also be a number of um, bodily sensations. And so uh, we did find, so our approach did flag um, the more visceral types of words to like stomach, for example, um. So, it, it, it really flagged in a very clean way words that from from our, our interpretation of the data went very well and in very direct ways with these prototypes that I mentioned. Does this answer the question for the top words?
2: I, I was curious. So, you said uh, 40,000 words total in the analysis. Was that right? Fourteen thousand, yeah. Fourteen. Okay, so of the yes. fourteen thousand, I understand you broke them down by type, but was there a number one word aggregate for all
6: no, no. types? No, no. Well,
3: uh, um, kind of. The answer is you have an answer like this per prototype. That's just how the analysis works. Got it. Okay. Right. So on. Uh, we we didn't really look at the single most important word. That would be an interesting question. I admit we have not looked at that. That's an exciting that.
2: question. Let but, me know uh, when you have
3: the update. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but the top words, it was quite surprising to us. And again, I'm happy to admit we did not accept, uh, we did not expect, is what I wanted to say, that this would turn out that well. But uh, the, the flag words, they were indeed very close to what we expected.
6: Can I can I comment on the on the link finding sure. as well uh, yeah. so I'm I'm, I'm I'm not sure if everyone saw the paper in the first figure um, so perhaps this is what you guys were trying to ask of Danilo, and maybe uh, the question framing was was uh, not ideal I guess um, but I, the first so the first prototype is Danilo was calling it which links uh, different drug reports to different receptors um, so the words most associated with that so these prototypes have two sides to them, uh, two axes. So you could think of it as a spectrum from one end to the other end. And so the first one, which explained the most uh, variants, or just explained the most in terms of the trip reports and drug receptors, was something on one end, which was visuals, was the biggest word, and the other end was reality. So, so this is really interesting to me, uh, thinking about the phenomenology of psychedelics. Um, so like. So the side with visuals had other stuff uh, as well, but it seemed to more so uh, relate to kind of sensory processes, like feelings in your body and your perception. Whereas the other side, the reality side, which was most associated with the drugs DMT, salvinorin A or salvia, and 5 meo dmt which have a very unique profile of so effects if anybody's familiar with them. Um, the words associated with those were reality, universe, uh, space, uh, inhaled, because you smoke all three of those, uh, world, consciousness, breakthrough. Um, and so this is essentially, uh, in my mind, uh, you know, Denelo and the crew who uh, wrote this paper framed it as ego dissolution, but perhaps another way to view it is it's separating kind of sensory uh, phenomena of sensory perception from the experience that your reality itself has been displaced or translocated or something like this. And uh, this is a very common type of report you hear with DMT and salvia and 5-MeO-DMT and also ketamine, which are ranking high on that side uh, of the reality. And so basically this main dimension of difference across trip reports and across uh, trip reports and receptors is separating the experience of basically breaking, feeling like you broke through into a different reality and um, and lost sense of your, your initial existence. And even the word "entity" is pretty high on that list, and it's a very common experience for people, for people to report under DMT uh, of experiencing this alternate, you know, uh, dimension, if you will, where they contact entities and feel like they're communicating with beings. Um, far out, but like, uh, hey, research has studied this. And for example, uh, Chris Timmerman, who's a postdoctoral researcher at Imperial College London, has uh, did his PhD on DMT and characterizing these types of experiences that people have. And so it's fascinating that the main way of separating was visual sensory phenomena versus kind of an almost associative re- reality translocation expansion experience associated with other drugs. So I found that to be particularly fascinating.
2: Wow. It's actually really interesting how you raised this parallel of several of those class of substances was inhaled and then the word was also associated with it. So yeah,
5: interesting correlation, huh? Uh, yeah, thanks uh, for, Manesh, uh, uh, adding this uh, uh, exp- explanation of the background. So for the figure one, I'm actually looking at the paper. Uh, it'll be great. They, I mean, probably the, uh, uh, Dan, Dan, Danilo has uh, uh, explained before, which I missed, the, for the visual, the, the t- two columns words uh, on the left of the figure one. Uh, uh, as I understand, figure one is for the factor one, which is uh, ego dissolution. The or, uh, At the beginning, I heard you say it seems to me machine learning type of uh, approach is a bag of words. You just uh, scramble all the structure, right, structureless bag of words. But now uh, there are two of them, uh, these two layers. How do you uh, decide on these uh, uh, the blue and the uh, uh, red
3: yeah that's that's a part that is uh, naturally hard to explain from our perspective Um, and it's part of the reason why uh, we resort to this uh, personality trait analogy so what each of the prototypes is it's really an axis along which a particular hallucinogenic experience expresses itself more on the positive side or leaning more into the negative side. So, as a first approximation, you can really think about it as uh, the same as uh, let's say extraversion and introversion. Um, it just describes the aspect of extra introversionness, and one pole of this axis has uh, very extroverted people, and the other extreme of that axis has uh, flex or or characterizes people at the opposite end. Does it have to do
4: with the interpersonal relationship aspects or intrapersonal relationship aspects? The self-talk or the way we communicate with others and interact with others?
3: Well, I'm trying to give kind of an analogy to how it's different. So the point is essentially um, what's blue, what's red, it it doesn't really matter so much. We could flip the colors; the meaning is exactly the same. Um, it's more about um, what are the words, what are the receptors that get flecked at the very extremes. It doesn't really matter which is the plus or the minus, or, or positive or negative or whatever. It's just it's just about the fact that if you establish one axis, one prototype, one archetype of hallucinogenic drug experience. It can express itself, it can be very present, or it can be very not present. So I hope this, this roughly helps. I hope this roughly answers the question. So I in, have another uh, question.
5: These, um, I'll wait, uh, Frank, please. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, and the, uh, so among the 14,000 uh, words, how many, how many uh, are blue, how many are red?
3: Um. Well, just imagine it's roughly half. It's roughly half. Okay, half. great,
5: thank you. So the uh, uh, that's very interesting. The uh, so for the figure one, the uh, could you like uh, use one example? For example, the I believe you said serotonin, the red on the on the top or right, uh, the S H uh, T two A. And the blue bottom is the D uh, one. How, how 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 do the, uh, the these uh, so apparently uh, these two uh, are the extremes, right? So they, they, they probably very exemplary in in your uh, 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 research methodology, like mapping to the uh, brain area cortex area.
3: Um. So. Let me, let me put it this way. Um, the biggest strength is also maybe the biggest weakness of this approach. So why, why am I saying that? So um, we can only identify groups of transmitters that go with groups of words. So, of course, they are um, relevant in a continuous way, right? Each receptor is relevant to a particular extent, and each word is related to a particular extent. But um, what this approach, what our study does not answer, is the the unique contributions of a single receptor or the unique contributions or the unique associations and linkages of a particular word usage with with neurotransmitter receptors. Because I understand that that is your question. We can only talk about constellations of them.
4: Yeah. Uh, Dr. Danilo and Manesh, I have a question for you two. Um, a bit of a disclaimer. Um, at best, this will sound taboo. At worst, it will sound controversial. But let's not kid ourselves. We're talking science here. We are mammals. And uh, let's say from a BF Skinner-esque uh, perspective, uh, provided that we are mammals. What, does, what role does libido play, for example, you know um, there is a phenomenon called uh, postcoital dysphoria and um we know that there is a euphoria um, um you know in anticipation of uh, sex uh, but for example is there any difference to be made between uh, libido as a drive sexual satisfaction let's say postcoital and um the uh, effect uh, psychedelics has on us pre- or post-sex, uh, um, again, provided that postcoital coital uh, dysphoria is a real phenomenon.
2: What, what, how many times was sex mentioned in uh, 14,000 words?
4: Maybe not sex, but libido, I, I would say is the continuum.
3: Yeah, I don't think I can say much about that. Uh, We didn't pay attention to this aspect and uh, I'm not sure this really came out in the results in any strong way.
4: Manish? Uh,
6: I mean, this is, yeah, certainly not something I can comment on. I'm not, I don't believe any
2: research being done on that or uh, in particularly- Let's do some research gentlemen, Be, be beyond the scope, beyond the scope of the study. For the time being, perhaps perhaps you can update us if you find anything of that nature. Uh, by the way, we
4: have uh, Vissam, uh down in the audience. I think uh, he will, um, you know, um, participate in the conversation and add value.
2: For sure. Um, just to check in with Daniela and Manesh, how much time do you all have um, with us left?
6: I do, um personally a bit over time and uh, I'm ready to wrap up very soon. I do have to go.
2: Okay. Uh, you know, you can, you can, um, if you need to go, feel free to go. We were very pleased to have you, but if you got to go, go for it. Daniel? Yeah. Maybe
3: one or two, um, final questions.
2: Okay. That sounds good. Um, moderators, are there any. Uh, final questions at this time, um, Flash your
1: Yeah, thank you. I did want to add because Danilo, when, when you began your talk, you had said, you had, I think based it on, this is what the journalist had asked you before. And I wanted to assert, this is your talk. So if there was something that you had wanted to bring up that we hadn't thought of asking, then please do.
2: Great prompt, yes. Is, is there anything we haven't touched on that you feel is important?
3: Yeah. Uh, let me maybe emphasize one thing that I alluded to in the beginning already. So, um, I really think that psychedelics are this formidable tool to study conscious awareness changes. So, why is that? <clears throat> because the because the the big c word consciousness that's that's of course a very broad notion it's something that's very hard to define we have not made final uh, definitive progress on how to best define uh, these very challenging notions and as you can imagine it's very difficult and, and and tricky to come up with careful rigorous experiments to study any aspects of how "Quote unquote," consciousness is related to aspects of the brain, right? So I think it's it's easy to appreciate that studying this this very noble notion is is very difficult for neuroscience traditionally. So how has this how has this been done in the past? Let me just give two examples of two extremes of how neuroscience has tried to study consciousness. So one way is the very theoretical way. I'm not going to say names of particular scientists, but uh, you can imagine that there's uh, a couple of armchair theories of uh, very theoretically oriented neuroscientists that come in from what you might call um, a top-down perspective. So they design and come up with axioms and principles of how they think what the components of human consciousness should be. However, a big weakness of these theories of consciousness, of a lot of them, is that they are not really falsifiable. So that means that um, they are so abstract, they are so out there, if you will, that it's very difficult to define experiments that could definitively verify or falsify aspects or the overarching theories. So we can not really bring them into contact with the actual experiments that we can do in organisms. So that's the very theoretical pull the other pull uh, would be attempts to study conscious awareness of sensory stimulation so as a very quick example um, other scientists who shall remain unnamed in this context they have for example uh, administered subliminal stimulation Uh, so very quick flashes of uh, images um, on a screen for example for a very small number of milliseconds such that the subjects were not or barely aware that there actually has been a visual stimulus in front of them okay and by modulating how subliminal certain visual stimuli uh, presentations were they could study how this relates to neural activity responses however for this particular approach these class of ways to attack the big c word i would personally argue um, i find it unlikely that visual stimuli are a potent tool to really capture the entirety and the complexity and the richness of conscious experience in humans so i think that the combination of a of Semantic deconstruction of complex human experience and the known bringing to the table, the known pharmacological properties of many of these drug compounds, this really. Is situated at a sweet spot between this very uh, theoretical top down and this somewhat tip of the iceberg and my personal perspective type of approach where you really just look at subliminal sensory stimulation and you don't really get to the full richness of and and the complexity of human consciousness. So I think, uh, I hope I convinced you why and uh, why I'm convinced that psychedelics and this um, exciting emerging stream of literature as it takes momentum, it also sharpens and hardens the methodologies and tools that we have to make a serious next attack of unraveling some of the neuroscience principles that implement aspects of human conscious experience. Any questions?
0: Yes. Um, so we had here Dr. Michael Levine, he was talking about his um, new framework um, uh, about Mind Everywhere. Um, so basically a new So just
3: for the record, I was not talking about him. <laughs>
0: I know you weren't, but um, your work, um, especially with using natural language uh, processing, do you think that based on your work, uh, you will get maybe uh, the best possible or one of the better frameworks of testing uh, consciousness in future artificial minds?
6: Very quickly before Danilo, before you respond, I'd like to interject, I do have to go. So I just want to say thank you to the hosts and thank you Danilo for inviting me. Uh, it's been really great to chat about this with all of you. So I hope you all have a great rest of the day or a great night.
0: Thank you. For-
2: thank you so much for joining thank us you. Manesh. Definitely come back in the future if you ever see our rooms. Uh, we'd love to have you on stage sure, and join thanks. us in our discussion. Bye.
4: bye.
1: Thanks
2: for
1: thank joining. You. Thank
2: you Manish. See you, bye
3: okay so what was the last question um artificial minds um okay so so last answer um so that's of course a very far-reaching question that gets at the nature of uh, neuroscience and ai right can we use principles from the brain to inform the design of new machine learning algorithms so that would be neuro to ai or its opposite can we Study the nature of machine learning algorithms in computer science to better study, frame, experiment, analyze aspects of how the human brain works. I think um, psychedelics can serve and play important roles for both of these directions. As we understand some of the underlying principles of human conscious awareness a little bit better, this can, in my personal opinion, do spark new directions of research in the machine learning community too. Um, And it is heavily discussed indeed in the machine learning and deep learning communities to what extent um, the algorithms that exist today or we may may have in the immediate future do mimic or even reflect some aspects of conscious awareness. Does, Does this answer the question?
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, discussion out there if we have already some simple form of emerging consciousness or how to test for it if we have it, because it generates ethical questions and what to do, if it's safe to have them, or if it's even safer to have. So based on you, because you know we can train those systems to have a natural language, to spit out natural language, can we, based on your data analysis, test uh, more reliably for consciousness in AI? Maybe one day.
3: Yeah, I, I'm not sure I can really add more <laughs> than what I said in my previous answer to Yeah, honest.
0: thank you. Yeah, that's
3: great. I think it covers it covers that one too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in my opinion. Okay. So I think I have to go, uh, similar to Monash. Um So thanks so much for the invitation. Thanks for the um, exciting discussion and the questions. Uh, it's been uh, very interesting and stimulating and uh, I'm looking forward to the next episodes of this um, series. I
5: really appreciate uh, uh, Dr. Daniel And uh, uh, Danilo, the, just quickly before uh, you go, I'm so fascinated by, by your research and just uh, to verify that I understand the, the theme. I mean, the 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 the, the most important message of uh, the, your paper. That uh, correct? Just verify with you that. Uh, uh, I uh, for example, the uh, figure one. The so so basically, the assumption here is the visual ones more uh, to the lower level cortex uh, function, like sense sensory, and reality is more uh, higher level abstract. But uh, that if that's uh, correct, that uh, got me uh, a little bit uh, c- uh, uh, curious of the. The sagittal. I mean, the if you look at the uh, hi, uh, uh, highlighted color uh, area, the isn't that the the green and blue uh, ones are the uh, the um, uh, sensory or motor cortex uh, uh, section versus the oh the uh, the posterior. That's correct. That's more visual. But there's also red ones. Seems to be the orange ones in the in the. Un- anterior uh, more associative uh, cortex do do i get the part uh, correct or completely wrong hello
0: um yeah i think maybe we can invite uh, dr Danilo back um i think he left oh okay uh, (laughs) sorry sorry about that yeah um, so yeah thank you for all the great questions today I think this was a really really interesting study it has so much data we would probably as dr danilo said more episodes of this um, topic to discuss all the data now because I think we got mostly to how they did this and why but not really we didn't get to do a deep deeper dive into the data itself so we should definitely i'll reach out to invite them back and um, yeah thanks everyone
5: yeah I really appreciate it I mean, it's definitely interesting uh the paper uh, just you know maybe we uh didn't get to hear in a, uh, enough time yeah uh, again again really appreciate everyone's uh, uh question and uh, uh, the speakers I think uh, he, he, he's left right but he's, uh, he, he's <laughs> profound, still there.
0: Yeah, I think they were tight. So, yeah, he, uh, yeah, he gave it, us
2: the outro, and he's out, and let's, uh, let's wrap up the room, yeah?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely invite them back. I'll try um, to invite them back, and um, yeah, thanks, everyone. I think this was a great room. Thank you, Victoria, so much for the introduction. You do such a great job at this. Interviewing process, so I really appreciate that. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, just as every time, um, like, uh, please um, follow the Science Society if you like discussions like this. We have tomorrow Dr. Liu um, here. Uh, he is actually the founder of one of the NSF institutes. He's a really accomplished uh, scientist, and he will discuss uh, his new theory of entropy, which with which he solved and is solving um, material design um, problems. Uh, The name of um, his entropy uh, theory is Zentropy. He's a really fascinating scientist, and. yeah, he his talk will be really interesting. So, join us tomorrow at the same time, and then on Friday, uh, I I will reconfirm. But we have Dr. Chen uh, talking about the new study how lithium use can changes the incidence of dementia. It's a really interesting new study that uh, he came. Um, about and um, yeah, and then um, we'll have rooms again next week with more guest invited speakers. So follow the club. Uh, we have almost every day guest speakers and um, and yeah, we'll we'll start. We are planning to start to have a weekend recap room where we kind of summarize uh, for everyone that couldn't make the rooms for whatever reason during the week, because weeks are busy, to have like uh, summaries of what happened in our science society, because also it can get overwhelming. We have so many uh, cutting edge uh, new studies discussed with really new technology and new inventions and science. Um, so we are planning to do a recap room on the weekends. I'll announce it in the next room. Uh, to and to give people another time a uh, chance to ask questions and um, also to give inputs about what they would like to talk about again or um, so yeah stay tuned for that and uh, yeah thank you everyone if any one of the moderators here has something to add that I forget all the time please do
1: Thank you. Just a,
5: a follow the club. Oh,
1: is. <laughs> Science is <Mindy> on top. <laughs> I was trying to click back to find my mic, <laughs> but should make the mic. The team needs to make the mic follow whichever screen we're on. Um, I'll go make that suggestion. So yeah, thank you. This was great. Thank you, everyone. Follow the club. Yep. Thank you.
0: And uh, see you again or hear you again um, soon. So. Um... Close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone.
4: Thanks, everyone.